are listening to a message from Bethany First Church of the Nazarene, online at bethanynaz.org. We've been in a series over these last several weeks called um, Way, Truth, and Life, Discipleship as a Journey of Grace. We've been using a book written by Dr. David Busick uh, as a guide for the series. I can't think of any better way to to really emphasize the series than to have the guy who wrote the book come and preach one of the sermons. Do you agree? And so this morning, yeah, we're going to do that in a minute. Dr. Busick is with us. He formerly served as the pastor of this church, and over these last 10 years, he has served as a general superintendent in the Church of the Nazarene. So here's what that means. He's one of six people that literally travels the world overseeing the Church of the Nazarene, uh, 168 world areas. Um, he is a good friend to me. He is one of my favorite preachers ever. You're going to love him this morning. And, um, and he's your friend too. I want you to make him feel really welcome this morning as Dr. David Busick comes to preach for us, okay? Love you. Thanks, Pastor Rick. Don't you love our pastor? Yeah. Well, good morning, everybody. It is always good for Christy and I to get to be home. And uh, I left Bethany First Church as a pastor, but I'd never left Bethany First Church. And, and I love this place, and I love you. So I want to talk with you this morning about two things. I want to talk to you about God's grace in your life and how God uses his grace and circumstances to transform you into the kind of a person that looks like Jesus. And then if you'll let me, I wanna share a little bit about my personal story. And I just wanna be really transparent with you about how God changed my life and began to transform me to look more like Jesus. So to do that, let's look together at a passage of Scripture. These are two pretty amazing passages. One's found in Romans chapter 12. The other one's found in Thessalonians chapter 5. Both of them describe how the grace of God begins to come into our lives and, and remodel us into who God wants us to be. I tell you what I want to do, instead of having you stand as I normally would, I want you just to kind of stay focused either in your Bibles or on the screens because we're going to be reading this morning from the message. It's, it's a little different paraphrase, and, and it may not be the version that you have. So let's start with Romans chapter 12, verse 1. So here's what I want you to do. God helping you take your everyday, ordinary life you're sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best you can do for Him. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God, and you'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out of you. 
and develops well-informed maturity in you. And now let's look together at Thessalonians chapter 5. May God himself, the God who makes everything holy and whole, make you holy and whole, put you together, spirit, soul, and body, and keep you fit for the coming of our master Jesus Christ. Now look at this. The one who called you is completely dependable. If he said it, he'll do it. Amen? So I want you to imagine with me that your life is like a house. And your house, this house of your life, it isn't all that large. It, it has a front porch. It's got a living area. It's got a small little kitchen. It's got a couple of bedrooms. It's nothing fancy, but it, it's what you have. Cosmetically, it doesn't look too bad. It's it's not a complete shack, but it definitely needs some repairs. It could use a paint job for one thing. Your front porch has some rotting wood in it. The roof isn't great. You've got some leaks coming in from the outside. It's kind of embarrassing. You'd like to get it fixed up a little bit, but you can't really afford to do that. But it's what you can't see that's creating the biggest problem. See, the plumbing in your house is kind of old. It doesn't always work the way you wish it would. The electrical system is way out of code. And the closets, don't get me started about the closets. They're full of stuff and just lots of things you can't seem to get rid of. And the asbestos, oh man, the asbestos is bad. But it's your house. It's what you have. It's, it's what you've got to live with. So now I want you to imagine your life as a house from a spiritual perspective. So the past few weeks, Pastor Rick's been talking about how the grace of God works in our life, in our journey of grace. And he's been reminding us that God's grace has many different facets to it. There's different aspects of it. First of all, we started with seeking grace. Sometimes we call it prevenient grace because it's the grace that goes before our response. By the way, that's what all grace is. Grace is never what we earn. It's never what we deserve. Grace always is the first initiative. We never make the first move. But here's what seeking grace says. Seeking grace says that Jesus came right into your neighborhood. He came right up to your house. He stepped right up onto the porch and he knocked on the door of your heart. Your heart. Jesus came to you. In fact, he says in Genesis, I mean in Revel Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, here I am, that's Jesus talking, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, you could say, of your house, I will come in and I will eat with that person and they will eat with me. What does he mean when he talks about eating with a person? Jesus is talking about relationships. Jesus wants to come into your house and he wants to have a relationship with you. Now, can we stop for just a second? I know preachers aren't good at stopping, but aren't you thankful that Jesus came to your door? Think about it for a second. Did you know Jesus comes looking for you? 
It's not the, way, the other way around. He pursues you. He comes directly to your house. He comes into your neighborhood. He knocks on your door. And Jesus is never going to barge in. He's not going to kick your door down. He's going to wait for your consent. But here's the point. Jesus doesn't stop knocking until you let him in. Sometimes we talk about our salvation like it's us coming to him, like it's our homecoming to him. But do you know when we're talking about seeking grace, what that really means is simply this. The real homecoming is when Jesus comes to your house and he knocks on your door. And you had to let him in, but he was the one knocking. And when you responded and you opened the door to hit from, when you invited him based on his invitation, he stepped off of your front porch and he walked into the house of your life. And he came inside. And when Jesus stepped into your house, that's what we call saving grace. Saving grace means Jesus, you were, die, you were dying and Jesus literally saved your life. He forgives you of your sins. He redeems you. He justifies you. He pardons your past. He relieves you. Of, he takes away your guilt. He regenerates you. What that means is, is the Bible says you are literally born anew. You're like a brand new creation. And then he adopts you into his family. It's all saving grace. And here's something remarkable. When Jesus comes into your house, that moment of saving grace, he gives you another gift. He's already given you the gift of grace, but he gives you another gift, and that is the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't want you to be confused. Holy Spirit is not some big, giant theological word out there. You want to know who the Holy Spirit is? It's the Spirit of Jesus in you. And you become in Christ. You're not in David anymore. You're in Christ, and Christ is in you, and everything changes. So a lot of you know me, so some of this will be not new to you, but for others of you, it might be something you've never heard before. Uh, Christy and I, my wife, we're, we were married when we were 18 years old. No gasp. I'm not saying it was a good idea. I'm just saying we did it. You know, it was 1983 in Oklahoma City. We didn't even have cable television. Seemed like the right thing to do. Christy was an accounting major because she was really, really good with numbers. I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. I just knew that I didn't want to be poor. And I can remember Christy and I sitting there, 18 years old, on the floor because we had no furniture of our little efficiency apartment right here at SNU, and we had the SNU catalog open looking, trying to decide, what do I want to do with my life? Uh, Dr. David, I thought I might want to be a doctor, but then I thought I can't stand the sight of blood, so that's not going to work. So right there on the floor, Christy and I made a decision. I was going to be a political science major. I was going to be an attorney. And I had this great professor here at SNU. He's this suave, young, good-looking guy named Dr. Lauren Gresham. But the big problem was, and I'm, and I'm serious about this, Christy and I weren't ready for marriage. I was barely ready for life. I wasn't mentally ready, I wasn't emotionally ready, and, and most importantly, I wasn't spiritually ready. And if I were really honest with you, our first year of marriage did not go well. In fact, it was pretty terrible. 
We were both trying to go to school. We were working full time. Neither one of us were Christians. Now, Christy hadn't grown up in the church. She didn't have a church background, but I didn't have any excuse. I'd grown up in a great Christian family. I'd had a great nurturing church around me, devoted parents who loved Jesus. I had all of that, but I wanted to do things my way. And when I was 16 years old, I decided I was going to do things my way, and nobody was going to stop me. The only problem was my way wasn't working. I was really selfish. I was really stubborn. I was really committed to my own happiness. And we loved each other. I don't want you to think Christy and I didn't love each other, but we fought constantly. We fought every single day. In hindsight, and I'm not just because she's here, but because it's true, it was 90% me. I know that. But we were struggling so bad. And I can remember thinking to myself, I'm 19 years old, I'm going to be divorced before I'm 20. And I felt so frustrated and I felt so empty inside and I was really, really scared. Things were getting pretty desperate. By the way, what I didn't know was that other people knew I was in a bad place too. There's a lot of people worried about me. In fact, in my home church, which is just right around the corner, there were five men in that local church who got so worried about me that they made a decision they were going to come to their church every Wednesday morning before work, and for 30 minutes, they were going to pray about one thing. They weren't going to pray about the government. They weren't going to pray about world peace. They were going to pray for David Busick's salvation. Can you imagine that? They did that for six months. It was the most miserable six months of my life. But here's what I didn't know. Jesus was knocking at my door. I remember one Saturday in particular, uh, Christy worked at Bethany Bank. We lived in a little house back here on 36th Street, and, and she came home early that afternoon, and I, I had made a conscious decision on that Saturday. We are not going to fight today. We're not going to argue. It's going to be a good day, and we did awesome for 20 minutes, and in 20 minutes, something came up, and we started arguing again. I didn't even remember what we were arguing about, but I do remember this. I lost it. I was so angry. I was so frustrated, and it all came boiling over. <laughs> remember, I had, a, I had a hostess Twinkie in my hand. I'm not even sure why I remember a hostess Twinkie in my hand. But I, t- I was so mad, I took that Twinkie, and I threw it as hard as I could up against that wall. And when it hit that wall, that Twinkie just broke up in like a bunch of little pieces, And when it did, when it exploded, something woke up in me. And I looked at that smashed Twinkie in pieces all over the floor, and I literally thought, that's my life. That broken Twinkie on the ground, that is my life. I've got a beautiful wife who loves me. I've got a great supportive family. But on the inside, my life is an absolute wreck. And I did something that I had never done before, at least in front of Christy. I literally fell onto the floor of that little tiny living room, and I just broke down. I just started weeping on the ground. And Christy had never seen me cry before. Now, I cry all the time now. I mean, I, you know, I cry at Hallmark movies, Christmas, dog shows. I mean, I cry over all of it. But I didn't cry then. 
And Christy was so shocked that she got down on the ground right next to me, and then she started crying. And I looked at her, and I just said, I'm so unhappy. I feel so dead on the inside, and I do not know what to do. And you know what my little blonde-haired, blue-eyed, unchurched wife said to me? She said something that literally changed our lives. She put her arms around me, and with tears in her face, she said, David, you know what we need to do. We need God. We need to go back to church. We need to let Jesus help us do what we can't fix. And I didn't know it, but Jesus was knocking at my door. It was that very same afternoon. I'm not kidding you. That afternoon, my youth pastor calls me on the phone, my old youth pastor. I hadn't talked to Ira Brown in like a couple of years. And I said, hey, Ira. And he said, David, I know this is a strange question, but I'm calling because I feel like the Lord wants me to ask you to come back and be one of our youth workers at the church. I said, Ira, don't you have to be a Christian to be a youth worker? He said, yeah. I said, don't you have to come to church to be a youth worker? Ira said, yeah. I said, well, Ira, I'm not doing either one of those right now. Ira said, I know, and that's a problem. So why don't you and Christy come to church tomorrow morning and we can talk about it. And I'm not sure what made me say this, but I said, okay. So the next morning is Sunday morning. I, I wake up and it's 1130 and I miss church. But I feel guilty enough that I made a promise to Ira that I tell Christy, I do not want to go to Sunday night church. I can't stand Sunday night church, but I made a promise to Ira, so we're going tonight. And we went, and I went kicking and screaming. And to be completely honest, during the sermon, I just kind of mentally checked out. I wasn't even listening. But when our pastor said, it's time for us to pray, and he was going to open up the altar for people to come and pray. I can't even describe why this happened to me, but for some reason, I knew this was a decisive turning point in my life. I didn't think it meant that God was going to leave me if I didn't respond to him then, but I did know some terrible things were about to happen in my life unless I made some change. And so I found myself walking down that aisle and coming down to the altar to pray, 19 years old, I, I wasn't even nervous. I was numb. I got down to the front of the altar. I was praying. I mean, 50 people gathered around me. I was like the prodigal son, come home. And the whole time I'm thinking, I've got my head down like this, and I'm not even praying. I'm thinking, Christy's going to think I've lost my mind. She's not going to understand what's going on here. And at, at some point, it was all my pride. At some point, I looked up like this, and there's my sweet wife, because Jesus had been knocking at her door too, and even though she hadn't grown up in the church, she's already opened the door of her life, and Jesus had come in and forgiven her, and now she's sitting there helping me pray through to Jesus. And when I saw my wife kneeling beside me, something happened, and it wasn't emotional, I wasn't crying, but I just said, Jesus, my life's a total mess, and I am making a wreck out of my entire life. Would you come in and forgive me of my sins and take control of my life? once and for all, and he did. Jesus came into my house, and he forgave me of my sins. He really did, and, and it was like something came alive in me, and all of the guilt I had and all of the shame about things that I had done, he just began to give me such a profound peace, and I, 
and I had a joy. And I don't even know how to describe what joy looks like when you're 19 years old, but I knew I'd not had that before. And everything began to change in me. And, and in a matter of a few weeks, all of a sudden our marriage, it started to have new meaning and we weren't arguing before like we were. And God was starting to kind of heal our hurts and our hangups. And I started to see miracles happen in our life. It was like every single day, God was doing something brand new in our life. And, and something really strange happened in me. I, I had this desire to read the Bible and pray. I had never had that desire before, but I was just like so spiritually hungry and empty. I would wake up in the middle of the night. You don't wake up in the middle of the night when you're 19. And I would sense Jesus' presence in the room. And I was so hungry for God that I would just literally pray myself back to sleep. Those first couple of months, I'd come home right after work. I had a couple of hours before Christy would come home. And I would, I would so, be so excited because I'd get to come into our house and I'd read my Bible and pray. And it was like God had a megaphone in my ear and he was just shouting in my ear and, and everything was just coming alive. Listen, that was not me. That was so not like me. I used to be a roofer. You know, I, I know my kids have a hard time believing this, but I actually roofed people's houses for a while. And before I was a believer, I used to have what, what we called a Walkman. And a Walkman is something that you attach right here. It was actually a cassette tape. You put a cassette tape in and listen with your headphones. And while I was working, I would listen to Queen and I would listen to Journey and I would listen to Kiss while I was working. And now I'm listening to Isaiah and the Gospel of Matthew. It was so weird. My friends thought I'd lost my mind. But my passions were changing. My desires were changing. And my ambitions were different. All of a sudden, it wasn't about just making money. It wasn't about making a name for myself. Now I wanted to make Jesus famous. I wanted, I wanted to bring glory to God. Something was changing me. And that's called saving grace. When Jesus comes into your house, he starts redeeming everything. He starts making it all right. But here's what I didn't understand. Was when Jesus came into my house, that wasn't just my salvation. That was the beginning of my holy life. You want to know why? Because you can't have someone come into you like Jesus, who's the most holy person, and not have you start to become like him. And when Jesus comes in, he starts to make you look like himself. I was in David before, but now I was in Christ, and he was redeeming it. Now, don't get confused. When we talk about the holy life, holiness, sanctification, we're not talking about theoretical, just big, big theological terms. Let me make it really simple for you. The goal of all holiness is that we would become like Jesus. It's not more than that. It's not less than that. There's a lot of depth in that. There's a lot of places you could go to describe what's going on in your life. But the bottom line is the goal of your holiness, sanctifying grace in your life, is to make you more like Jesus. It's not to make you more moral. It's not to make you self-righteous. It's, it's that God would help you to begin to think like Jesus and see like Jesus and serve like Jesus and love like Jesus. That's what holiness is. It's you becoming like Jesus. I guess you could say it this way. Sanctification, sanctifying grace, is Jesus 
rearranging your house. So I love this quote by C.S. Lewis. Do you like C.S. Lewis? This is an amazing quote. He said, I want you to imagine yourself as a living house. God moves in to build that house. That's saving grace. He moves in. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he is doing. He's getting the drains right. He's stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew those jobs needed doing, and you're not surprised by that. There was some, there was some work to be done. But presently, he starts knocking the house about. That's an English way of saying he starts tearing up the inside. And that hurts abominably, and it doesn't make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that Jesus is building a quite different house from the one you thought of. You know, throwing up a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but Jesus is building a palace. He intends to come in and live in that palace of your life himself. If Jesus is gonna live in you, it's not gonna be a shack. It's gonna be a palace for a king. And when he comes in, sanctifying grace says, he reimagines you. He doesn't tear you down, he doesn't bring it down to the studs. He's literally remodeling himself in you and remaking you into the person that's gonna look like him. You become Christ-like. Your house is under new management. Okay, so now stay with me for a second. How does that happen? So there comes a point in every Christian's life, I don't care how long you've been a Christian, at some point it begins to dawn on you that no matter what you thought had been fully surrendered to Jesus when you invited him into your house, you realize that there remain some unsurrendered rooms in that house. There are parts of your house and mine that are being remodeled that have remained closed off from the purifying work that Jesus wants to do. But here's the awesome news about that. Jesus is so faithful and he's so relentlessly committed to your holiness that his Holy Spirit begins to probe into your life. And this is what he says. David, is everything mine? Is everything in your house, does it belong to me? I'm not just talking about your salvation, David. I'm talking about your past hurt. I'm talking about your bad memories. I'm talking about your ego and your pride. Is there anything that you're still holding back from me? And this is where the war starts. This is where the war for sovereignty starts in your life. Now hang in here for a second because this is super important. This is when Jesus starts to ask you the question, who is going to be king of your life? See, Jesus is your savior now. It's not about your salvation. The question is, is he gonna be your Lord? You're already saved, that's powerful. The question is, is he your master? See, before this moment, there was no war because you were fully committed already. You were already, you weren't even in the battle. There was no skirmishes. You'd lost the war. You were being completely pushed down. 
But now the war starts because now there's, there's something fighting for your lordship. In fact, the Bible says Jesus gives you a new mind. Before it was the David mind. Now it's the Christ mind in you. And, and here's what I thought. When the war said, who's going to be the king of your life? It's not, I, I started to think, God, my life is so out of whack. My life is so completely messed up. I don't, I don't know if I have the energy to change all that. I don't even think I can change that. I can't take back all of the stuff. But Jesus says, let me do this in you. And Jesus started moving into the rooms of my house and opening up closets that I had never opened up or hadn't opened up in a long time. And he was taking the shack that I have made of my life and instead of completely tearing it down, he started a major remodel. And this is one of the first things he did. In my life, he said, David, let me start cleaning up some of the messes that you've made. I'm not proud to tell you this next part, but one of the messes that I'd made is that when I was a young teenager, I was a thief. I'd steal stuff, and I stole a bunch of stuff. I'm not proud of that. I'm just telling you that was my life. And I'm not sure why, but now at my 19-year-old self, it was like Jesus, the Holy Spirit in me was saying, David, I want you to make some restitution on that in your life. You say, what's restitution? Restitution is making right what you've done wrong. Restitution is taking accountability for your actions, and sometimes it's humbling yourself and going to a person and saying, I wronged you. Will you forgive me? I was so wrong, and Jesus has forgiven me. Would you accept my, my apology? Sometimes it's way more than that. And for me, it was, it was Jesus saying, David, go back and make those things right. I didn't even know where to start. I was 19 years old. We didn't have any money. And I knew I had to pay some stuff back. And we were, we were literally living on mac and cheese in a box, Kraft mac and cheese. That was what we ate every single night. It's all we could afford. And I only had one thing of value in my, in my possessions, and that was my baseball card collection. I had a great baseball card collection. And I went down to the shop, who was a friend of mine, and I gave him my baseball card collection, and I said, give me whatever you can give me for that because I need to go and make some things right. You said, David, that sounds really legalistic. Was God kind of hanging that over your head? No, the Lord was leading me. He was, he was trying to heal some of the things. I'd been carrying around this shame and this guilt, and he, and he wasn't going to let me stay there. And believe me, you can't imagine how humbling this was. You, you know how humbling it is to go to somebody and say, I took this from you when I was 16 years old, and I'm here to make it right, and people going, You're, what are you doing? God wasn't just remodeling my house. He was, he was digging around in the closets, and he was saying, David, I know that you've given me your life, but would you surrender everything to me? Would you, would you be obedient enough and humble enough to let me get into some of the closets of your life and take those broken pieces that you've made such a mess out of and let me actually not only redeem it, but bring glory to me through it? And I said, Jesus, this house belongs to you. Every single nook and cranny. Don't go, I mean, go into every closet, go into every dark place, rearrange it, make it look like you. And you know what? He started doing that. 
I can't tell you how many conversations I had with people during that time, but I also remember the day, and it happened over and over and over again, but I remember the day where I just felt Jesus say, David, that's enough. You've pleased me. You did what I asked you to do, and now you can stop. And there was like this huge burden lifted off, and, and it just, I felt free. You say, David, was that you trying to pay God back for your sins? Absolutely not. I couldn't pay it back in a million lifetimes. It was God helping me to forgive myself. It was God helping remake me into the person he wanted me to be, and it was God coming into the closet-like places of my life and dealing with my attitudes and my pride and my prejudices and my selfishness, and it was Jesus making me look like him. Are you with me? I'm going to close with this. My life is so different right now than it was when I was 30 years ago. I can't even tell you all the stories of how God has worked in me, and I didn't deserve any of it. God's grace is amazing. He keeps surprising me now. I'm 59 years old. He keeps surprising me with his goodness. And here's what I know. He's not done working on me. God is never going to stop working on you. But here's the thing. It is his grace, his gift, his goodness from start to finish. Now, here's the last thing. Nick, come on up, brother. I want to close with this, but this may be the most important thing I say in the next two minutes. Do not miss this part. There was a long time ago, and there was a man named Paul and he wrote a letter. Paul's life had been transformed. He wrote a letter. We have that letter in our Bibles. And this is what he said to a group of Christians. For we, say we, are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned us long ago. Now, I looked up this word masterpiece. You know what it literally means? It means art. The Greek word is the word poema. That's where we get our word poem. Paul is trying to say, when Jesus comes into your house and he starts remodeling you, you become his poem. You become his work of art. When I took art across the street, Introduction to Fine Arts, I'm not a great artist like my wife is, but I did learn three things. I learned that art is beautiful. I learned that art is valuable. And I learned that art is an expression of the, of the artist themselves. So when Paul says that you are God's masterpiece, that Jesus is actually remodeling you and taking every part of your life and making it like himself, this is literally what it means. You're God's work of art. You're his masterpiece. Your consecrated life is a poem to the glory of God. Don't let the enemy of your heart and soul deceive you into thinking that you're a slave to your past. You're not. You're free in Christ.
and he's making something beautiful out of your life, when God sees you, he says, oh, they're my poem. And so would you let God, would you give him the complete surrender of your life and say, Jesus, I give you everything I am. Hold nothing back. There's not a room of my house that I don't want you to come in and make it clean and make it look like you. So masterpieces, would you like to talk to Jesus today? Here's what I know. There's, there's a group of you today, because I was in your group, and you didn't know it, but Jesus is knocking at your door. He's right in your neighborhood. He's on your front porch, and he's saying, I'm not going to stop knocking till you let me in, because we're going to have the most amazing relationship together. All you have to do, you don't have to do one more thing than to open the door. And Jesus takes over from there. And then he's going to walk into your house. He's going to start doing some of the most incredible things in your life that you could ever imagine that the culture could never give to you. He's going to give you peace. He's going to give you understanding. He's going to give you wisdom. He's going to give you so much joy. And then he's going to start saying, would you like to be more like me? And he's going to start saying, what's in that closet? That closet's locked. Can I go in there? And we might be saying, you know, Jesus, that's, that's the one part of my life I can't give you. And Jesus said, I, I got to have it all. Would you let me heal that closet? Would you let me forgive that closet? Would you let me take the shame and the guilt away? And he will. Would you stand right now? If Jesus is knocking at your door, let him in. It'll change your life. It'll be the best thing that's ever happened to you. Some of you have been Christians a long, long time. Some of you have amazing things going on in your life. But I also know this. You can be a Christian a long time and have Jesus as your Savior, but you never let him be Lord. You never give him the whole house. This is your invitation to become God's masterpiece. So Jesus, right now, with these amazing people, your poems, I'm looking in the faces of your poems. Would you help them to just say, Jesus, take it all. Rewrite my life. Remake my house. God, would you do something we know we can't do for ourselves? And we pray this. By the grace of Jesus, amen. So Nick's going to sing a song and lead us. You can sing along as well, but we have a place here just like I came on that Sunday night. There's a place we call an altar. It's an amazing place to pray. And if you just want to come and talk to God about anything in your life, any part of your life, this is a safe place for you to do that. So come right now if you want to pray about anything. I'm caught up in your presence And I just want to sit here at your feet I'm caught up in this holy moment And I never want to leave 
give you a benediction and let those who are praying stay as long as they want to pray but this is for all of you would you look at me for just a second your sanctified life is God's poem it means in God's eyes you are beautiful you're stunning to him it means you're valuable you're his most valuable person. And it means that he will not stop until he makes you look like the artist himself. Sin will not have the last word in my life, and it won't have the last word in your life. And so be his masterpiece. And all God's people said together, amen. The Lord bless and keep you. May his grace go with you. You're dismissed. You have been listening to a message from Bethany First Church of the Nazarene. Visit us online at bethanynaz.org.